The following audio is from Morningstar Baptist Church in Dayton, Ohio. For more information about Morningstar, visit MorningstarDayton.org. Hey, open your Bibles at John chapter 21 this morning. Once again, I'm super excited that you're here today. We're wrapping up our series called This Changes Everything. And if you've been with us over the last couple weeks from Easter till today, that's exactly what we've been looking at, how the the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It it should change us because when we give our life to him, um, it should change us. And today we're going to wrap this up um, by looking at, the last few days that Jesus was here after he rose again, before he went back to heaven, in this idea of called a fireside chat. And that'll make a little more sense to you here in just a moment. But in 1933, President Roosevelt um, started like, like a revolution in how he communicated with the American people. He was the president of the United States. This, the country was struggling at this point. In fact, they were four years into the Great Depression that wasn't really affecting just the United States. It, it really was a worldwide depression. Everybody was, the finances were up in, in upheaval. Uh, people were stressed. There was no money. There, was, there were people dying because of, they couldn't afford um, certain kinds of, of medical care. There were people who were starving because they couldn't afford to eat and their farms were failing. It was just a horrible time. And um, he took to the radio airwaves regularly to address the nation in a way that really had never been done before. Other presidents had been on the radio because it was still kind of a new medium to, to, to broadcast stuff. But no president before Roosevelt had actually said, this is an intentional radio broadcast to the American people, and I'm going to do it consistently. So he was the first one to do that. And by doing that, he was able to bypass the regular media, which was newspapers at the time. TV wasn't around yet. So it was just radio and, and newspapers. And so he's like, you know what, I'm not going to go through the media. I'm not going to go through newspapers. Because then the message gets muddled. I'm just going to go straight to the American people. So I'm not saying I endorse his politics. That's not what this is about this morning. It's just about how he really was an effective communicator when he started doing this, just talking directly to the people. And so over the next 11 years, from 1933 to 1944, Roosevelt was consistent in just conducting a series of radio broadcasts that he called Fireside Chats, where he would sit and he would just talk frankly and candidly with the American people And in most of these, it was just a very straightforward message of what's going on, how it's impacting our country, and what the plan to confront it is. Now, if you've ever listened, I've listened to a number of them over the last couple weeks, and he wasn't a dynamic speaker. It wasn't like he was like, oh, man, I'm going to turn him on because he's super interesting to listen to. In fact, a lot of people didn't know he had a whistle like when he spoke because he had a gap between his teeth. And and so there was this whistle when he first started doing it. And so he actually had a bridge made to cover that space up (laughs) so people wouldn't hear that anymore. But he wasn't like, oh, man, it's so awesome. He's a great dynamic. But here's the deal. They were simple. They were direct, straightforward, most of them about 30 minutes long. And he just, just laid out his heart and his vision of the American people. But the one that stood out the most to me as I was listening to them was the one from December 9th, 1941. Two days after we were attacked at Pearl Harbor by Japan, you got, some of you guys hopefully have read and heard of history where the Japanese um, Navy and their planes attacked our naval bases in, in, in Hawaii. So many people died. 
our, our Pacific fleet was crippled. It was, it was crazy how bad the damage was, both on a physical toll and also material toll. And our nation was just, it was, it was, uh, it was people were stressed, people were, had questions, and everything was it changed on that day. And from Sunday, which was December 7th to Tuesday, December 9th, it hadn't gone very well for us since then with Japan. They kept attacking our, our naval fleets out in the Pacific, and it wasn't going well. On Monday, the day before he gave this fireside chat, Roosevelt went to Congress and in a seven-minute speech asked, and asked that they declare war on Germany and Japan, and he was granted overwhelmingly. But now it's Tuesday, and the country is still scared. There's anxiety. There's, what are we going to do? And I, I wasn't around then, but I was around September 11, 2001, when we were attacked. And I remember that tension in our country and that fear. And I, do I go to work today? What, what do I do? Like, what's going to happen? Is that going to happen again? Are we safe now? And just everybody's on edge. And I can ima only imagine that's what it was two days after December 7th. And he goes to the airwaves in a very somber and direct fireside chat with the American people. And he was very direct with what the war was going to look like. He was very open with them about how many casualties, and this is going to cost a lot of lives, and a lot of people are going to be injured, and it's going to cost a lot of money. He was very open. He's like, look, this is going to be very expensive, both physically for us, but also financially. Talking about what a world war would look like and the sacrifices that would be made. And I love this. This is what's really interesting about this speech. If I encourage you, you can go find it on the internet. I encourage you to listen to this fireside chat from December 9th. As he's going through it, you can tell he's reading his script. And, I, and you can hear by the inflection of his voice and the tempo, he's reading this. But then he says that word sacrifices and he stops himself. And he says, you know what, that's not the right word. And you can tell at this moment he totally goes off script. <laughs> he's, he's winging this at this point. And he stops, that's not the right word. He says sacrifice is not the right word. And I love what he says. He says, for a nation whose very survival and freedom is at stake, to serve in the military is not a sacrifice, it's a privilege. And he said to a nation that is on the cusp of losing uh, lives and, and freedom, to give up certain luxuries to help the war efforts, not a sacrifice, but a privilege. To work long and hard hours is not a sacrifice, but a privilege. And to give money and time is not a sacrifice, but a privilege. And he just says, privilege is the right word. I love that. Because by the end of this little 37-minute fireside chat, Roosevelt brought direction and purpose to a nation that was reeling. He brought, brought hope and comfort to a nation that really didn't know what tomorrow was going to look like. And what, what's amazing is even in the midst of the casualties that they knew was going to come, the, the husbands that would be lost, the fathers and the brothers that were going to be lost, knowing all that, this nation, at the end of this, they rallied around this and it brought unity to a nation. This fireside chat that he had, and I, to wrap up this series of This Changes Everything, I want to talk about a fireside chat that Jesus had with Peter and his disciples that far exceeds in importance anything that Roosevelt ever said. That is so much more important than any president or any world leader has ever said. And to do that, though, I want to I lay out the background and context for this conversation. We'll get there in John 21 in just a minute. But to get, we got to understand what's all happened before this. See, when, by the time we get to the, the fireside chat he has with Peter and the disciples, about two weeks earlier, 
Jesus hadn't been killed yet. In fact, they were in the upper room and they were, they were celebrating the Passover, what we call the Last Supper. And in the book of Mark, chapter 14, Jesus talks to them and he says, all of you, talking to his, his disciples, will fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And here's what Peter says, and it's gonna be important for later, so tuck this away for right now. Peter told him, even if everyone falls away, <laughs> I will not. He looks around at these other guys. He's like, even if all these guys, they might not be able to handle it, I'm not going to leave you. And then he boasts a little bit more because Jesus says, truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. But the Bible says, but Peter kept insisting. Like, Peter didn't know when to shut up, okay? If you know anything about Peter, you got to understand that. Because here's what he says. If I have to die with you, I'll never deny you. And then the Bible says that, and they all said the same thing. So Peter says, no, man, I'm going to go all the way with you. If I got to die, I'm going with you. And all the other guys go, yeah, what he said. <laughs> yeah, we're all in this together. But later that night, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the soldiers come and they grab Jesus and, and they start taking him away. And you know what all these guys did? They scattered. They ran off. Peter didn't scatter necessarily right away. In fact, where they took Jesus to go be tried in the middle of the night, there was a courtyard there. And if you read the rest of that passage, what we find is that, um, that Peter's hanging out around the courtyard by this fire, warming himself by the fire. And a girl walks out from where the trial's going on. And she looks at Peter and goes, this guy? Like, you're one of them. I've seen you with him. And Peter says, no, 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 not me. You got me confused. So a little bit of time goes by and he's still warming himself by the fire. And she starts telling everybody around him, hey, that guy, you see him, he's right there. And Peter can hear her saying this. He's one of these Nazarenes. He's hanging out with this Galilean. He's one of Jesus' guys. And Peter looks at the crowd and says, no, 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 I'm not. And then a little bit while later, the crowd starts to talk about Peter. Yeah, you know what, that girl's right. I've seen him. I, I, I'm pretty sure I was there. I, 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 he's got to be him. And Peter goes, no. In fact, the Bible says that he swore. And, and growing up, I thought that that meant Peter said bad words. <laughs> I'm like, man, shame on Peter. Right? Why would he do that? And, but that's not what it means. In the original Greek, what that means is he said, a curse be upon me if what I'm saying is not true. You ever hear somebody say this phrase, I swear to God? Or I swear on my mother's grave? Right, like I, I'm swearing and I'm making this oath that bad things happen to me if I'm not telling the truth. That's what Peter did. And at that very moment, the rooster crowed. Imagine that. And he realized exactly what it is. And it, and it says in verse 72 that Peter broke down and he burst into tears and he ran off and he wept bitterly. See, the rest of that passage, if you keep reading, it shifts away from focusing on Peter and the disciples. It focuses all on Jesus. Because he went from there to Pilate where Pilate condemned him to death. And they took and they, they bound him up and they blindfolded him. And they had people come by and slap him and punch him in the face. And they mocked him saying, hey, who just hit you? If you're Jesus, you're the son of God and you prophesy and tell us who's hitting you. And then as they were walking by, when slapping and hitting wasn't enough, they reached up and grabbed with a fistful of his beard and they ripped his beard out with their hands leaving just clumps of mangled flesh and bloody hair on his face. And then they took 
a thorn bush and they cut a string of it off and they, they tied it in a circle with long thorns and they, they put it on his head as a crown and they forced it down tight where the thorns ripped the flesh and dug into his scalp and blood's just pouring down his face. And then they took his clothing and they stripped him of his clothes. They tied him to a post and they took what's called a cat of nine tails, which is a whip. And at the end of the whip, they had nine strands of leather and there were pieces of, of metal tied to it and nails and, and sharp objects so that when they would strike, those, those straps would wrap around his body and then the, the, the person doing it would rip it out as hard as he could. And we did that, all that metal and, and nails would rip flesh and just scrape it all the way off where his ribs on the front and the ribs on the back were completely exposed. They mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They took a purple robe and they put it on him and patted it down tight on his back on all the open wounds. And they ripped that off of him. And they gave him a cross for him to try to carry up the hill to Golgotha, which at that time was outside the city gates of Jerusalem. And they laid him down and they, they had him stretch out his arms. They put nails in his hands and nails in his feet. And when they had him secured, they, they stood that cross up and there was a hole prepared for that cross to sit in. And they just dropped the cross into that hole and the whole weight of his body just jolted on the nails. And he hung there. And even in death, they mocked him and they hated him. They made fun of him. They, they gambled over his clothes in front of him. They called him all kinds of names. And then he died. But what's amazing is and what changes everything is what we've been singing about for the last couple of weeks. The fact that our Savior did not stay dead. The grave couldn't keep him. Death couldn't hold him. Hell couldn't defeat him. He came back to life and rose again on the third day. And what an amazing message of hope and, 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 and direction that gives to us to know that our God's not dead. He is alive. But if that wasn't enough, now for the next 40 days, he, he appears to his disciples over and over again. And that's where we get to this place where now he's standing by the Sea of Galilee in John chapter 21. And his disciples are in a boat. Look in John 21 verse 1. It says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That's another name for Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. In other words, here's who all were there. Simon Peter. Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's son, that's John and James, and two others of his disciples were together. And Peter says, I'm going fishing. And they, says that we're, they say, we're coming with you, they told him. And they went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And when daybreak came, so right before the sun's coming up, there's a little bit of color in the horizon. It says, Jesus stood on the side of the shore, but the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. Too dark to make out a face. But as they're coming near, this, this person who is Jesus, but they don't know it, calls out to him and says, hey, did y'all catch any fish? Y'all being the Texas slang Jesus used that night, that morning, says, y'all to catch any fish? And like, no, we worked all night, didn't catch any fish. Jesus says, cast your nets to the other side. So they throw their nets to the other side, and when they bring it up, it's so heavy, it is full of fish. And at that moment, Peter realizes that's, God, that's Jesus. And the Bible says that Peter jumps off the boat and swims to shore, leaves all of his buddies with all the fish by themselves. Swims to shore, the guys come right behind there. And in verse 9, it says, When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire with fish laying on it and bread. Jesus had this fire prepared for them. 
And on this fire, he's got some fish and some bread cooking. And he asked them to give him some fish because they've been fishing. Hey, give me a couple of those. We'll cook some more up. And they sit and they eat breakfast with him. And when they finish eating their breakfast, Jesus uses this time as a fireside chat with Peter. But the other disciples are there too. Peter denied him. Everybody else abandoned him. So Jesus is talking to Peter, but he wants everybody else to be affected too. And look in verse 15. It says, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. Some of your translations might say son of Jonas. It's the same thing. Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. And he says, feed my lambs. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. He says, shepherd my sheep. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Jesus said, and then he goes into telling Peter how he was going to die. He says, truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. And he said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And after saying this, he told him, follow me. The last time Peter and Jesus shared a meal together... Peter boasted about how he was never going to leave Jesus. I love you too much to do that. I'll never leave you. Even if all these other guys do, not me. My love for you is so strong, there's no way. Nope, not me. And when Jesus pushed him on it, he said, never. If I have to die with you, man, I'm all in. The last time Peter was warming himself by a fire where Jesus was nearby, he totally denied that he even knew Jesus. He even swore by it. The last time Peter was asked three questions about Jesus, he totally denied him. But now he's asked three questions by Jesus. What I want to focus on this morning is how this changes everything. Because this is such an interesting dialogue. Yes, it's about restoring Peter. It's about how he denied him three times and Jesus asked him three questions. It's all about restoration. But there's such an interesting dialogue, a back and forth. And Peter had seen Jesus at least twice since the resurrection, and this subject hadn't come up yet. <laughs> so you know, I don't know if you've ever done something wrong and you're, you're, you're hanging out with the people you've wronged or whatever, maybe growing up and like you knew, your parents knew, but they weren't bringing it up to you yet. And like that, that, that pit in your stomach, right, that gut feeling like, oh my goodness, they must be planning something big for me because like they're not talking about it at all. Peter knows he wronged Jesus, but Jesus hasn't brought it up the two times they've seen him. So you know he's thinking in his mind, is Jesus going to ask me to lead the disciples if I lost this group? Like where do I stand with Jesus now? Like where, when is this going to happen? And so you knew he was uneasy about this dialogue that was coming. And I want to break down this dialogue because we just read it. But there's three things I want to pull out of it this morning about how it changes everything. The first thing is this, if you're taking notes, is this, the name drop. Okay? The name drop. Jesus is talking to Peter and he says, he calls him Simon, son of John. But that's not the name that Jesus called Peter by all the time. Jesus gave Peter a nickname, Cephas, or we call it Peter. 
The one time we find him using this name, one of the times, one of the times we find him using his name is when, when Jesus says, hey, who do you say that I am? And Jesus says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus blesses Peter and says, Simon, son of John, you, the, the, you didn't reveal this to yourself. The Holy Spirit revealed this to you. Now this is different. He doesn't call him Peter. He calls him for who he is. He calls him Simon, son of John. Okay, so here's the deal. Growing up, you knew you were in trouble when your parents used your full name, right? Like you knew this was serious. Like growing up, if my dad just said, hey, John, I'm like, okay, no big deal. When dad said, John William, right, I'm, I'm not dealing with that, right? In our house, you hear Jonathan William, Daniel Stephen, Mason Brady, you know things are about to go down, Right? Now, Jesus isn't yelling at Peter here, but he's using his full given name because he wants Peter to understand how serious this is, and he wants everybody else to take note. He's like, I want you to get this. He says, Simon, son of John, it's an authoritative move. Jesus is being personable, but at the same time, he's being authoritative, and that's an amazing thing about Jesus. He calls us by name. He calls us out of darkness into a marvelous light. He calls us out for a purpose and a mission, yet he tenderly draws us ever closer to himself throughout our life. And I think only Jesus is able to pull this off the best way. But he name drops. Peter, I want you to take notice because I got something for you. The second thing is this. We call it the big ask. The big ask. Jesus asked Peter three times if he loves him commentator says this. He says he, his fall had given occasion to doubt his love. So this commentator says Jesus is basically saying this. Peter, I have cause to suspect your love. For if you had loved me, you would not have been ashamed and afraid to own me in my sufferings. How can you say you love me when your heart was not with me? And I think it's very interesting that Jesus didn't ask him, Simon, do you fear me? He didn't say, Simon, do you honor me? Simon, let's talk. Do you really admire me? Jesus asked him straight out, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter had already wept. There had already been repentance in his life, and he had already rejoined the disciples. But Jesus pressed him on this issue because, one, Jesus wanted to now restore Peter, but he also had a job for Peter and the others to do. So we can look at this and go, man, Jesus, he's being kind of harsh here. Listen, the ask about love is really just setting up the next thing we're going to talk about here in just a minute. But Jesus is just guiding Peter through this conversation. The first time Jesus asked Peter if he loves him, he adds a phrase, do you love me more than these? That Greek word for that phrase is plion tutan, more than these. But what is he talking about? What is the more than these? Is he saying, do you love me more than you love your fellow disciples? Do you love me more than the relationships you have in your life? Or maybe when Jesus said, Peter, do you love me more than these? Did he point to the boats and the nets and say, Peter, do you love me more than your occupation? Do you love me more than the security that that brings to you? Do you love me more than the identity you get in your work? Do you love me more than that? Or was Jesus asking him, Peter, do you love me more than these guys love me? He's asking, do you love me more than these love me, more than the rest of any other disciples? And that question is really meant to bring up in Peter's mind that night in the upper room when he said, even if all these other guys leave you, I love you too much to do that. So Jesus is like, man, is your heart still there? Like, do you still feel that way about me? 
And Jesus asks this question two more times, and all three times Peter responds in the affirmative. He says, yes. Now here, I don't want to get bogged down in too much language, but here's the deal. What's super interesting, and when Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? Jesus uses the word agape, agape actually the, the different tense of the word agape. Agape is the Greek word for unconditional sacrificial love. And the first two times Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? He uses the word agape. But when Peter responds, he says, yes, Lord, I love you. But he doesn't use agape, he uses phileo, which is close-knit, brotherly type love. So Jesus asked Peter, it goes like this, Peter, do you agape me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. Second time, Jesus asked Peter, do you agape me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. The third time Jesus asked it, Jesus uses phileo. The third time Jesus goes, okay, Peter, do you phileo me? And Peter was grieved. Why? Peter at that moment couldn't say that he agape loved Jesus. Why? Because his actions didn't prove it. And Peter knew. That's why he was grieved. He knew. I've talked a big talk, but my actions say something totally different. I said I'll love you and never leave you, but my actions said something different. So what was Peter was saying by saying I phileo you, yes, Jesus, I love you, but I phileo you. Peter's like, I can't say it because I didn't prove it. And then Jesus uses that next verse after that to say, hey, one day you're going to be led somewhere you don't want to go and you're going to die a death you really don't want to die. What Jesus is saying is, look, you're going to have an opportunity to prove your love for me. And while Peter was grieved in the question, that next verse, it probably brought brought some relief to him knowing that Jesus wasn't done with him. He was grieved when Jesus asked it. That third time, and he wept. Every remembrance of that bothered him. But the big ask, and really the big ask, wasn't meant to hurt Peter. It was meant to lead to the third thing, which is the charge. The charge. This is what changes everything. Because three times when Jesus asked Peter if he loved him, he gave him a command, what we call an imperative. He said, the first time, feed my lambs. The second time he said, shepherd my sheep. The last time he said, feed my sheep. So feed my lambs. What he's saying is, I want you to feed the young ones. He's talking about a spiritual food, not physical food. He's like, look, those that are going to be come to me because they've been fished for. Remember, he called them fishers of men. Those that are going to come to me and saving knowledge of me because the shepherd went out and found them. I want you to feed them. I want you to invest in them and love them. Teach them and feed them my word. And then he says, shepherd my sheep. The second time he asked him. Why? That word shepherd my sheep actually means perform all the duties of a shepherd. What was the biggest duty of the shepherd at that point? To go and find lost sheep. Jesus over and over again while he was walking the earth with them would tell parables and talk about how he's a good shepherd. He would talk about how the, she- the good shepherd will leave the 99 and go find the one that is lost. And so he tells Peter, part of your job, if you love me, is to feed the little ones that come to know me. The other part is you need to be out looking for lost sheep. Go and search diligently for them. And the third time he says, ask him if he loves them, he says, feed my sheep. This idea of lead them, lead by example, lead them to do the work of the ministry, train them to go out and find others to learn how to feed others. And this changed everything. Stay with me, here's why. 
Up until this point in, Mar- in John chapter 21, Jesus had done all the shepherding. Up until this point in John chapter 21, Jesus had done all the feeding. Jesus had done all the teaching. Jesus had done all the finding. And what Jesus is telling Peter and the other disciples is, now it's your turn. There's a transition happening here because within a couple of weeks, these same disciples are going to be standing on the side of a mountain and Jesus is going to be ascending into heaven. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you power and authority to go fish for men. I'm going to give you power and authority to go and look for lost sheep. I'm going to give you the power and authority to teach and to minister and to shepherd. And then he says in Acts 1.8, but you will receive that power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. What do you mean witnesses? It means you're going to talk about Jesus. You're going to witness of him in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so this fireside chat is Jesus' way of restoring Peter, but also for preparing their hearts for what was coming. And to transition them from Jesus doing everything to them following Jesus and shepherding. And I love how he ends this chat in verse 19. Look back in verse 19 at the very end. He says two words. He says, follow me. He looks at those disciples sitting around that fire that morning as the sun's coming up. And he says the same two words to them that he said at the very beginning of their ministry when they first started, he started gathering them. He walked by the Sea of Galilee and he said, follow me. And now he's talking to these guys who abandoned him. He's talking to the guy who denied him. And he's reissuing that same charge. I want you to follow me. Jesus lets them all know, I'm not done. I love how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. Paul says this, everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself. Reconcile means a change. It's an exchange where we exchange our sin and our failures with the righteousness of Christ because he died for us on the cross. That's what it means to be reconciled, that now God looks at us as family instead of as enemy. So he says, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ, And has, if you have your Bibles open to this, you might want to underline this, given us the ministry of reconciliation. Ministry, that's a fancy word for saying job. It does not mean full-time ministry. It says he's given us the job of reconciliation, of making that known. Then he says that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. I love that. We plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled. What is he saying? We beg and plead and we teach and we find and we fish and we do everything we can to tell this world, you don't have to live in your sin. You don't have to live hopeless because Christ died for you. There is hope and eternal life. And Paul says we beg people to do that. And in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, working together with him. Get this. Paul says, you and I working together with Christ. You get that? And it's continuing. Paul didn't write in chapters, all right? So he's not done. He says, working together with him, we also appeal to you. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. That means don't neglect or reject God's grace. This is our fireside chat this morning. Let me ask you. Do you love Jesus? If it was you and Jesus sitting across the fire that morning, 
Would you be able to answer that? Are you a follower of him? Let me put it this way. What keeps you up at night? What bothers you to your core? What burdens you to the point that it just it, you can't get past it? For some of you, it might be your work or your job, your bills, your kids, politics, the, the state of our nation. But here's the deal. We're missing the point if those things are what's keeping us up at night. I want to I share with you this morning what, what drives everything I do. And not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a follower. In 2014... I was working as a police officer in Springfield, Missouri, and I got called to a wreck that had happened on Grand and the West Bypass. It's on the west side of town. Grand T intersections there with the West Bypass. And I was really close, so when I show up, what I find is there was a car full of girls, teenage girls. There was four of them in this car, and they were at the stop sign, and they turned right on the West Bypass, and they turned in front of a cement truck, a concrete truck. Concrete truck hits the car and they both go down into a deep ravine. The concrete truck lands on the side of the car, trapping the girls inside. And I roll up right after this has happened. And of course, I, I rush out of my car and the window, the, the driver of the concrete truck, he's okay. He's just a little bloody and dazed. And I and I go and I look at the car and all the windows are busted out of the car. And I, I crawl through the back window and I start helping the young ladies out of the car and they're, they're cut up and they're bruised and they're obviously very shaken and I'm setting them in the grass and I'm going back in for another one. I come and I just repeat that process till I get to the last one in the front. And her name's Rachel. And I can't get Rachel out. Everything I try, I try I'm moving stuff. I'm trying to pop the seat back. I'm trying everything I can to make space to pull her out, but I can't. She's trapped from the waist down where the weight of the truck is pushing on the dash and the door and it's pinned her in. And as I'm in there and I'm trying everything I can, she's crying. She's scared. She's looking at me and she's begging for me not to let her die. And I'm trying to reassure her every way I can. Hey, no, honey, it's okay. We're going to get you out of here. It's not a big deal. Just hang on. The fire department's coming. And sure enough, they show up and they're trying to rig up stuff to get the concrete truck up. But it's taking a long time. And at first she's talking to me. I'm just trying to reassure her. But then the screaming starts. Scream that honestly, you, you never can get out of your head. And as she's screaming, she's begging now at the top of her lungs, don't let me die, don't let me die, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. And I, all I can do is just wrap my arms around her and tell her it's going to be okay, we're going to get you out of here, we're going to get you out of here. And all of a sudden, the talking stops and it's just screaming and blood's starting to come out of her mouth and out of her nose. And I'm doing everything I can and, and I'm just, and I'm talking to her at this point, I'm like, Rachel, please listen. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Listen, you can go to heaven. There's a way for you. Do you know Jesus? And I'm trying it, but she's not listening. I'm just like, God, please let the words I'm saying, please, God, let them penetrate somehow to her and for her here and give her life to you. And I'm holding on to her. And, it, and as I'm holding on to this teenage girl, she slips off into eternity.
And the only thing I can think of, the only thing that is just tearing me up at that point was did someone find this girl before today? Did someone leave the comfort of their church? Did someone leave the comfort of their home? Did someone put aside everything they wanted, everything they desired to talk to this girl about Jesus? And I'll never know. And it keeps me up at night. And now when I look at people, I don't see the person at Dunkin' Donuts. I don't see the person at Walmart or at McDonald's or at the restaurant. I see a soul hanging in the balance. And I'm just praying, God, let me be that person to talk to them. Help somebody leave the 99 to find this person. Help someone start fishing for men. Help our church get it. It's not about how we do church. It's not about whether you're comfortable in here or not. It's not about whether you like the music or you like the children's program or you like the youth program or you like this lighting or you like the stage. It's not about any of that. It's about people like Rachel who, God forbid, someone doesn't go find them. And that bothers me. Not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a follower not because I have a Bible degree, but because I love Jesus. And you know what? I fail at that love all the time. There's more days than not. I would not be able to look at Jesus and say, yes, Jesus, I agape love you. But what is driving us? I love what Paul said when he said, we plead with you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled with God because that affects how we do church. It affects why we do church. This is why our church is set up to reach lost people, not make you comfortable. A friend of mine this week, Sean Sears, as he was speaking, he said when a church member feels excluded, somebody hurts them or they, they don't like something, what do they do? They go join another church. When a lost person feels excluded, they go to hell. They go to hell. And I'm not okay with that. Because church is not about you. It's about lost sheep who don't know. The church is for the lost and for training the found to find the lost. That's the only reason we're here. We're here for the lost and to train those that are found to go find the lost. Again, do you love Jesus? Then go get some sheep. Do you love Jesus? Then it's time to start fishing. Love and serve those who are here because this changes everything. Church, I'm going to share my heart for just a moment. Here's the deal God is doing some amazing things at our church. And don't you think for a second that this world and Satan has not taken notice. Don't you think for a moment that they're not trying to discourage the work of God that's here. So let me be very frank and very candid with you. Either get on or get out of the way. Either get on, get on board with what God's doing here, get on board with the fact that church is not about you, or get out of the way. Some of you, it's time for you to get your hands dirty and start serving. Some of you, it's time for us to start living out. If we say we love Jesus, it's time to start doing something. Because 
The cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ changes everything. And look at me, it should change you. Do you love Jesus? Church, I'm going to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment this morning. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you have any questions about Morningstar Baptist Church or today's message, visit MorningstarDayton.org and choose Contact Us.